Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is, of course, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and the Pop Sequentialism blog and exhibitions. And we're going to do something a little bit differently on this show. It's going to be kind of a, a short show. And I'm going to talk about a few of the things that we've talked about in previous shows as sort of a catch-up and also talk to a few people that work on the show. And uh, very briefly, because some of them are, are extremely podcast shy, but we won't say who. But uh, first, I want to talk about the thing that I think I've gotten the most uh, letters about in in of the twenty four shows that we've we've done at this point. And the number one thing that I've been contacted about, and it's not the um, the Jerry Robinson pages um, that you've seen covered on Kevin Smith's blogs, um, and it wasn't even the diversity in comics. But the thing that I've been contacted about the most is page rates um, that. One of the things that really surprised people about the very early shows was Steve Bissett talking about, you know, actual page rates, actual um, royalty rates and those types of things and the publishing deals that happen and ha- as they happen on the back end. Um, several of the subsequent guests that I've had on have even said that that was the one thing that really stood out to them and made them want to do the show. So I started talking to a few other professionals, um, all of whom have requested that they remain nameless. But um, please trust the authenticity of of the information, if not the identity of um, the source. Uh, And it turns out that the basic page rate that's being offered by Marvel Comics these days is somewhere between $100 and $150 a page and covers are $500 or $600. And understand that as professionals, the only person it benefits to keep that information secret is the publisher. That if professionals get together and they start discussing how much they make, um, then you can start to kind of move the needle a little bit and figure out, you know, if, if they tell you that everybody's agreeing to this and they're not, then it may give you a little bit of leverage and you can choose to say yay or nay. Now, the other thing that I've, I've been sort of uh, asked about a lot is something that we focus on quite a bit, which is you know how to break in an industry. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, I guess that we're gonna have on uh, pretty shortly is, is my friend Andy, who went from being an employee at a comic book shop to working at Valiant and running a division. So it's, it's not that difficult to make your dream come true if you can prove to the powers that be that your talents shine and that you're making a difference and that you're a benefit for them to have. Um, he was also somebody that uh, was working with comic book resources and in other comic book blogs. And I think as much of that type of thing as you can tackle, uh, more to your benefit. Um, so it may be the secret backdoor into comics is, lo and behold, working in a comic shop. And it may depend where you work. It may depend what city you're in. It may depend on your access to talent and other professionals. But I think with most people going to the big conventions, 
if you write a letter ahead of time to get a hold of the people that you want to talk to and you can figure out what their schedule is and if you're a little bit more amenable to meet times and locations then it might not be that hard to get a meeting with the person that you need to talk to and if you've got something to offer them by way of your talents and services they're much more likely to actually meet with you so if you're looking to break into the industry as a professional and there's a lot of better ways to do it than to bring a portfolio around and just drop it on people's desks when they're there to, to sell their own business. So bear that in mind. Now, um, one of the other things that we've we've covered quite a few times is the the growing diversity in comics, which I think is a good thing. And when I first addressed it in the Pop Sequentialism blog years ago, it wasn't uh, to the point that it is now. I'm really happy to see that there does seem to be a a rather large increase in other than Caucasian characters and not just males in suits so that um, the landscape is becoming uh, filled with more realistic body types with um, a more diverse cast of ethnicities and creeds and that the fan base overall is also going in that direction that whereas maybe 15 20 years ago the um, numbers skewed very heavily male 19 to 26 um, that those numbers are starting to change and reflect a lot larger female readership. And uh, especially in superhero comics, we can probably thank uh, the Thor movie for that. But, um, you know, we'll take it. We'll take it any way we can get it. Now, if you're listening to this and you've been listening to the shows in sequence, um, one of the guests that will have probably immediately preceded this is uh, Sonny Liu. And Sonny Liu is the comic artist on Dr. Fate who um, had, had written a really amazing autobiographical book where he created a character to be a narrator to talk about um, Malaysia and Singaporean history. And the fact that that got picked up by an American publisher reflects that publishers are understanding that large audiences are very interested in learning new things and embracing other cultures. And what makes it even more kind of impressive to me is that it doesn't represent what would be the number one secondary market for comic fans. It's not Japanese story, that it's Southeast Asian. And Southeast Asia is an area of the world that most American comic fans probably know little to nothing about. And so having a major publisher, and talk about Penguin Books and a division of Penguin Books, publish a very personal graphic novel that addresses the history of Singapore and Malaysia, um, taking a chance on that uh, based on its success in, um, in its home country, that they're banking on growing the population of readers for this material and that they're interested in the demographic that's already out there enough so that they're catering to a very small um, portion thereof. So this is good news too. So I think now I'm, I'm going to take a little quick break, even though this is a very short show, to uh, invite um, a word from one of our sponsors. And as we've said before, you can shoot an email to me at info at popsequentialism.com or you can uh, reach out to anybody at, uh, at Meltdown and you can inquire about advertising rates. You can give us feedback and I'll be back in just a moment with uh, after a word from one of these sponsors. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And we're doing a little bit of a rundown of some of the things that I've been getting emails about and um, discussing um, how things have changed since the, the shows were originally running. But um, one thing that uh, I've been really psyched about in being part of the Meltdown Network is some of the other shows that are on the network. And there's actually a very small group of people that kind of make all of this happen. There's my producer and engineer, Mason, 
and Mason's giving you the solid fist, um, who's in charge of recording and uploading everything and making sure the sound is okay. And sometimes he's given a really tough challenge of areas to record where we've got glass tables or glass walls and sound is bouncing all over the place and he can go in there and make it sound about as good as it's ever going to sound. And I completely and totally appreciate it. And we also have here somebody I actually just met for the very first time today, even though she's been working behind the scenes pulling the strings on this show. And uh, it's Melody Mew. Did I say your name correctly? Yes. Excellent. And uh, she's our social media director, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. perfect. All right. And um, I think that it's easy to take for granted um, when you don't hear people on the mic in, in a regular basis. Um, just how much work goes into into a show like this. And I know there are tons of people who just open up a laptop and they do their, their podcasts and, um, and they call it a day. But um, because of the nature of booking guests and booking studio time and, you know, kind of juggling regular life and the other events that are happening, not just, you know, here at Meltdown Comics, but um, the XSN network, which is um, a very a very large part of the studio family here, and the Nerdist, and and all of those other amazing genre specific organizations, that you know you really it's it's sort of amazing that so many shows can get such a, a great launch pad from the same place, and um, so I definitely wanted to to kick a word out to to some of the people here who are doing that. Now, one other thing, and this has become a, a big thing with my industry friends, was the show that we did on the numbers, on how numbers work and how movies make money and whether or not they're actually making money and if there's a formula and all that type of thing. And um, just a, a few weeks ago and probably a month ago by the time this airs, um, the Batman vs. Superman Donna Justice movie opened. And there's been a lot of chatter online about a movie that has made $700 million um, being considered a, a loss or um, somehow not successful. And there's doubt um, from some people that find that inconceivable. And then there's the, the other way that things are criticized or rated, which is um, based on the critical score in, in the regular print media. And I want to uh, tackle that a little bit because I think it really feeds into that previous show and it helps to make a point. And the point is this, that when Warner Brothers launched this movie, they did so with very high expectations that it would make the type of movie that the the type of money that the Avengers had made. Um, but the Avengers, of course, had five setup movies immediately and a couple of other films even before that um, to feed into the launch of that particular franchise. Whereas this is kind of doing the opposite. This movie is launching a franchise in the back of itself, um, banking on the fact that most people have seen a Superman movie, have seen a Batman movie, and are now issuing a story that uh, changes what has come before to a degree, except for the Man of Steel film, meaning that this film really only works off of the back of a single movie rather than off of, say, five. And so to establish a launch pad for future characters is kind of the exact opposite of what the Avengers movie did. And in fact, the phase two at Marvel used the Avengers movie as a launch pad for putting other characters into other movie stories that would then rebound back into a different Avengers movie. So by the time the third Avengers film comes out, you'll have met another cast of characters via the other films that are coming out now. And, and Civil War has new characters, and obviously everybody knows that Spider-Man is going to be in it. But um, that this is a very different model. 
And so to expect a movie without the type of upward push that five previous hit films have had to make the same type of money, regardless of how much money you throw at it, is an unrealistic expectation. It did break box office records for opening week totals, and it did have a, a rather steep decline in box office, as have had all of the Transformer movies and all of the Jurassic Park films. Um, the biggest money-making film of last year, of course, was Jurassic World, um, mainly because Star Wars came out in, in close to the last weekend of the year and didn't have the um, the full um, length of time to make its money in that one calendar year that the other film had had. I'm sure that the biggest film this year will be Star Wars. and um, But when you look at the numbers that say Transformers Age of Extinction made, um, that's a $1.1 billion worldwide movie. Um, but that is also another film that benefit from three um, previous films. So how is it possible for a movie to make almost $800 million and, and not make money? Well, budget really only accounts for production budget. So what it costs to actually get one single version of that movie in the can. And then on top of that, you get marketing costs. Marketing costs can include and often do include uh, the cost of reproducing versions of the film to screen in theaters, uh, supplying digital download equipment sometimes, uh, producing copies for airlines, um, and sending them out, and so the cost of mailing those things. But of course, it also includes what everybody knows marketing and advertising costs to be, which is the marketing and advertising budget, billboards, um, television commercials, um, theater trailers, uh, ads in newspapers, ads in magazines, bus benches, um, all the ancillary stuff. And that doesn't even include the social media campaigns, which often employ, in the case of a major motion picture, uh, up to 40 people in, from a single location, um, tweeting, um, uh, planting you know, news stories, back to good reviews, all kinds of uh, on the level type of, of news generation and in some cases a little bit of a shifty um, news and self-serving um, social media stuff. So in this day and age where you're constantly trying to hit the wall with ways to make people find your film or your product, the marketing budget can often equal to or eclipse the production budget. So it's easy to see if a film costs $20 million that they may be spending 40 to $70 million to promote it, um, hoping that it, it's a comedy and it breaks you know, that $200 million mark. Um, but with a big genre movie with a, with a huge budget, the marketing and advertising cost is usually about half of what the budget is unless you're trying to you know, really you know, break that glass ceiling. And clearly Warner Brothers did with this. There was a very long lead campaign um, with with bus shelter posters, bus benches, billboards, um, and and other, I guess you'd call traditional um, advertising um, platforms that went a long way ahead of the film, which they can claim success in that it worked by the means that it broke box office opening records. So that marketing worked. So since there was a sharp drop-off, they're obviously going to throw a lot more marketing and advertising into getting everybody else into the theater that hasn't already seen it. And so if you've got a film with a budget of $250 million and you start throwing your basic pre-marketing and advertisement budget of 20%, and so you're talking about another $50 million, you're already at $300 million. And now if you talk about doubling that for an ad budget, you're already upwards in the neighborhood of you know, $600 million to even break even. 
and since you have to consider negative costs before going into um, a, into the black, you're really looking at having to make $1.2 billion to profit on a project that's costing you $600 million behind the scenes. So when you consider those types of figures, it's not really whether or not this movie is ever going to be considered a success from the point of view that it made that much money up front. It's going to be seen as, did it do its job in launching further franchises? Will the Wonder Woman movie um, be a must-see film now that we've seen Gal Gadot in this film? Will the subsequent Aquaman movie or you know the subsequent Justice League film, um, has that movie, has the, the bits that tie into that in this film excited us enough that it, it justifies um, the added expense without generating money of its own? And I think that Warner Brothers is already excited about that. And it's easy to, to spin and say, oh, well, you know, um, it's, it's meeting its expectations. Well, clearly the criticism that the film got about being too serious in tone was taken to heart when that was the same feedback they got in the Suicide Squad trailers and why they stuck another $20 million into reshoots for that film. And um, in a way, that could be a situation where they let the tail wag the dog that um, certainly some people um, thought that the tone of uh, Batman versus Superman was too serious or too grim, but that didn't stop them from going and seeing the film. Um, whether or not that stopped them from going and seeing the film a second time um, is is possibly worth addressing but um, most advertising money doesn't go after capturing a second view and there have been a, a handful of films and, and very successful ones that have really um, succeeded in doing that uh, Titanic um, comes to mind and that um, the feedback in audiences in Japan lining up and seeing the film four or five times in a row over the course of a day and a half um, started to hit American media which made American audiences want to see it even more and um, timing the releases so close together, it was able to um, to be a mutually beneficial um, multi-territory release. Now on big platform films, they try and open the films as close to the same date as possible, mainly to combat piracy out of China, India, and, um, and South American countries. So that's kind of the regular way that things happen now and not a reactionary marketing plan. So, um, I hope that example works. I hope that um, that gives people basic understanding of how a movie can make so much money and but not quite make any money. And um, if anybody is so inclined, they can actually go back and check into um, issues of variety of all the lawsuits that actors and other professionals filed to get a piece of the residual money from Titanic, which at that point had already been the most successful film of all time and before it was eclipsed. And they were being told that it still hadn't made any money. So um, there's always the accounting problem. There's always the, the reality of, of uh, how money is spent and how money gets divvied up in a studio project. And there are a lot of people that are constantly at work at studios and that pay is sometimes divvied up across multiple projects depending upon how much time is um, dedicated on a tax form for each of them for each project. And so that can eat into a major platform release uh, because it's much harder to steer that expense towards smaller films. Uh, and often the producers of those films will complain wildly and um, it causes just an accounting nightmare. So um, again, yeah, this is sort of more of a little catch up moment here for us at Pod Sequentialism. And uh, I wanna thank you for, uh, for listening in and, 
And uh, again, if you've got other questions about other things that we've caught, we've covered over the um, the 24, 25 episodes that we're at at this point, then by all means, shoot me an email. Um, I'd be happy to read your email online if you want me to. And um, looking forward to uh, bringing some more exciting and sort of not what you'd expect material to a show that is ostensibly about comic books. Once again, uh, I've been Matt Kennedy. You've been listening to Pod Sequentialism, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.